Hello and welcome to the CSED Podcast, a podcast where we talk about teaching computer science with computer science educators to learn how they teach and manage their classrooms. I am your host, Kristen Stevens-Martinez, an assistant professor of the practice at Duke University. And joining me today is Amy Coe, associate professor at University of Washington. Amy, how are you today? I'm doing great. How would you tell us about yourself? What do you teach? How many students do you have? Yeah, sure. Um, I've been a professor at the University of Washington um, at the Information School, so not in a computer science department, um, for about 11 years now. Um, and I teach a lot of different things, um, kind of mirroring some of my different expertise um, in, in research um, and teaching. So I've taught um, about foundations of information to freshmen and sophomores. Um, I teach a lot of HCI classes to our undergraduates and also to master's students. Um, I teach software engineering courses. Um, these are primarily electives to juniors and seniors who are on their way to, to jobs. Um, and then lately, over the past three or four years, I've been teaching high school students computer science um, in the summertime in our Upward Bound program, so first-generation college students. Cool. And how big are those classes? Uh, they vary quite a bit. That freshman seminar course can be 200 students at a time, so a big team of uh, 10 TAs and a lead PhD student TA and me, um, all the mm -hmm. way down to the summer high school courses, which are um, often 15 students um, uh, on campus, where they're coming from their, their various high schools in South Seattle and visiting campus. Um, and then all of the ones in between are usually about 30 to 40 students, um, usually undergraduates. The master's courses are about that size, too. All right. So, I wanted to talk to you today about debugging because you have done a lot of work in debugging and I'm really curious about how to help my students with debugging more because I feel like on the forum post or my office hours I often get this thing where the student comes to me and goes, something's wrong with my code, fix it for me. And I'm like, what's wrong? What have you tried? And the student's like, I don't know, fix it for me. And I'm like, there must, there, there needs to be a more productive discussion here and it's not quite clear to me how to go about doing that. So what are your debugging steps that you've been researching and, and have your students do? Yeah, um, I'll talk about the one that we taught to the high school students um, uh, that we've been teaching in the summertime. Um, this one was intended to really target uh, students that had very little um, uh, programming experience, mm -hmm. no debugging skills, um, and, and it, it was also a heavily scaffolded strategy. So it starts off by basically saying, um, first write down what you think the problem is. Um, and the reason for this is because oftentimes um, learners are looking at some program output and they think it's wrong, but they actually don't quite understand what the program output's behavior is or what, what the problem is. If they can't mm -hmm. write down precisely what they want to be different about the output, they can't really debug it. Um, so okay. trying to be precise about this didn't shouldn't print, right? This number should yeah. never appear. Or this number is six and it should have been five. Like getting that really precise description of the problem oh. down first is key. Okay. Um, I think like I do that naturally, but that, that never occurred to me to, to, to make students articulate that. Yeah, and, and when they don't, what we found is that they often have really vague conceptions of what the, be, the faulty behavior is. They might say, it's not right. Something's broken, right? Mm -hmm. But it turns out that behind that ambiguity and those vague statements is that they don't even understand what the program was supposed to be doing. They don't mm -hmm. understand the prompt that an assignment gave them um, mm -hmm. or if they were the ones envisioning the behavior of the program um, and, and trying to design their own um, behavior. 
they may not even have a really good understanding in their head of, of what behavior they want. And so the wrongness of some program output isn't always that well specified. And if you don't have that, you can't really debug something, right? It's, you have to know exactly what you're trying to yeah. fix. So that's the first step. The second step, um, once somebody's figured that out, is um, really trying to enumerate possible explanations for what might be going wrong. Um, and this is just the observation that one approach to debugging is to do it scientifically. Um, generate some hypotheses and test them. Mm-hmm. Um, and by doing multiple um, hypotheses, it really helps learners brainstorm um, possible uh, uh, divergent reasons why the program might have gone wrong. Maybe it was that line of code you just edited. Maybe it was something that you wrote um, a while ago. Maybe it was an interaction between two things. Um, mm-hmm. We found that, that students had a lot of time generating these possible hypotheses, but it was a great way to bring a social um, element into that active learning. So um, they could oh. pair up with somebody that they were um, um, sitting next to and say, can you help me think about reasons this might be happening? Or mm-hmm. um, go to a teacher or a teaching assistant and, and um, brainstorm together collaboratively, just like we've, we've seen experts do in practice. Mm-hmm. Um, And then once you have a list of those possible explanations, um, going through that list um, iteratively and exploring each of them um, uh, independently. And um, that that exploring of those hypotheses involves going and trying to precisely understand um, how the program was executing and whether or Mm -hmm. not that part of the program you thought might be wrong was involved in it doing something um, incorrect or undesirable. Mm And this is the hard program comprehension that I, that I mentioned before. This is the part that is time-consuming yeah. and requires some detailed, careful, precise thought that not all students want to have to do. Um, mm-hmm. And so that process requires sometimes some support of, you know, they're in the middle of trying to understand what they're, you know, what some function call is doing. Um, and then they'll say, mm-hmm. well, I don't think I understand what this is, right? And then there's mm-hmm. a little bit of teaching that might happen that a TA might help with. And once they understand it, maybe that was the defect. Maybe it wasn't, but they're learning then about the behavior of the program. Mm. Sometimes that leads to new hypotheses. Oh, well, if that's doing that, then maybe this is happening, right? And then they might explore those. Yeah, so, so is that like a breadth-first search or a depth-first search for the students as they're trying to, to debug the, these various ideas of what's wrong? Yeah, this is this is very breadth-wise with respect to hypotheses, but then depth-wise for the program behavior, right? If you if you think that okay. a particular thing is causing the problem, fully explore that until you're confident that either it is the problem or it's not, mm-hmm. and then move on to the next one. Um, and this is very different from, let's say, a strategy that, um, uh, let's say, follows program execution forward. Um, uh, from execution, right? Mm-hmm. You could have a strategy that says um, step through the program um, using a debugging tool line by line and understand the behavior of everything that's happening until um, until you notice the defect. And that is mm-hmm. a pretty reliable way of doing it. It just might take a really long time depending on the yeah. <laughs> complexity of the program. So um, it's in some ways more of an optimization for that, right? Um, it'll always work to watch every single step of the program execute until you <laughs> encounter the defect, but it might take hours. <laughs> it might take a very long. Well, if we're talking about, say, CS1 students, it probably won't be as bad right. as as others, though. I, I definitely am, I'm thinking of some particular bugs I've seen students go through like every single semester so I know it's going to happen. 
And some of these bugs are the, it manifests in one file, but it actually appeared and had like the fix is in a completely different file. And the students are like flabbergasted, like, where is this bug coming from? How is this possible? And I'm like, I know exactly what's going on. But now I have to figure <laughs> out how to guide you through the process to figure out on your own what is wrong. And that really surfaces these really interesting questions about what is the learning objective of a programming assignment, right? Are you trying to help them understand the algorithm that they were um, studying? Mm -hmm. Do you want them to engage in that learning about programming, I mean, about debugging strategies, right? Mm -hmm. Do you want them to um, learn how to be resourceful to get help to support all of these different problems they encounter? Some programming assignments, you know, have the goal of teaching all of those things, mm -hmm. and, and that makes them really hard to teach. If debugging is not a huge priority for an assignment, though, maybe you just give them a list of all of the possible defects that might, they might encounter along the way, right? And you remove that from the problem. I, I've seen some people approach trying to help students with debugging in that way, where if the assignment's goal is not really about debugging, they give them a list of possible ways that they could screw up and like where all the bugs are. Yeah. But that re that results in a laundry list of an FAQ that no student reads. <laughs> and I, it's, it's not, and, and I don't know how much I would, I guess part of me is thinking how, part of an assignment's goal is I guess, you could say is the apprentice model where you're going through this process to learn the whole process of creating a thing. And, but that does sound like a very large learning goal that is not clear as maybe the best learning goal for the circumstance now that I'm thinking about it and talking about it out loud. That is the big challenge, I think, of any teaching around programming and, and computer science is there's a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. Right. And any good teaching has to really, in some ways, elegantly deconstruct all of that and serialize it in some way so that it's possible to learn. Because if you throw all of it at somebody all at once, they will probably fail. It's too much. And I think yeah. we see that happen a lot, even in CS1 classes, where we assume a lot of prior knowledge, but they, a lot of students actually don't have it. And even that first week is an overwhelming amount of information to have to process and internalize yeah I wonder if well I would hope that at some point we will come up with an actual sequence in for CS1 whether or not we when we do will probably take time I I'm currently working my way through your the computer science education journal article that Ben wrote and oh, for yeah, the, the four pieces of Tr was it tracing, syntax, writing? I'm missing one. Templates. Yes. Um, and it's like a combination of, I love this, this is great, but at the same time, it seems like a lot. <laughs> and to break yeah. it down that much. And it probably is partially just because of my own biases because I was lucky enough to have computer science in high school where I, I programmed in high school. I programmed in QBasic, so that dates me. Um, but part of me, 
I know is I'm I'm working through my biases of like it makes sense for students to to go through this process, but I I learned it so much through osmosis in high school that I'm like of course it's normal, and I'm like no I am not normal. <laughs> like, should well, not that, think of myself as normal in this context. <laughs> and that notion of osmosis, I think what osmosis usually means is that all of that learning happens somewhere, sometime, supported by something. We just mm-hmm. don't often remember what it is. So yeah. like me, um, learning to program on uh, my, my TI basic uh, graphing calculator, right? Where did mm-hmm. I learn the syntax of that basic language for that programming language? And, and I realized after trying to go back to some of those memories, there was this instruction manual for the graphing calculator. And there were about 80 pages on the programming language. And it was basically a little textbook wow. explaining to me the semantics of every little construct, every little control flow idea, right? Somebody mm-hmm. sat down and wrote a textbook to teach it to me. And I read it over and over and over again until mm-hmm. I understood what the program was doing. Um, and that was kind of separate from the debugging that I was doing. And you know, in some ways, I wasn't even writing anything. I was taking some uh, Tetris game that somebody had already authored Mm-hmm. Very, very carefully and methodically trying to understand the language and then understand that program and then modify one small part of it to make it uh, be more performant so that it was faster, right? Mm-hmm. And that was months, right? Months of yeah. no teacher. It probably would have happened faster if I had had a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I think that my memory of all of that before I'd really pieced through what had happened probably would have described as osmosis. You know, oh, I was just looking at a lot of code and I figured it out. <laughs> yeah, and what's, what's horrible about a statement like that, if you think about it, is students say those kinds of statements all the time and they make those who have, who are such novices, feel so insecure. And so like, oh, everyone else has got it except me, I must be stupid. Yeah. And my heart goes out to those students so much. I think it also interacts a lot with going back to the culture of computing, computer science, especially in higher education, is a place where people like to signal their intelligence, right? It's not a place where we say, you know, I had a hard time with this. I worked really hard to get to this level of understanding. It's a place where people say, "Um, I figured it out because I'm smart. I'm clever. Look at this clever thing I did, right? Yeah. I, I try so hard to normalize, like, struggling and taking forever on something in my classroom. I think I'm partially succeeding. I don't know how well I'm succeeding, but from some of the anecdotes and some of the thank you notes I get, I feel like I'm succeeding. I succeeded with this student. (laughs) I always struggle with that as a teacher as well, because how do you balance um, projecting your authority so that you have Mm -hmm. that resource to to teach, but at the Mm -hmm. same time sort of model that you're not perfect and that you have to work through hard problems too and yeah, I think, I, I for me, I, I draw on stories from when I was younger to make it seem like the old me when I was your age <laughs> was like totally crazy and did not know what they were doing. <laughs> the new, the current me knows totally what I'm doing most of the time. <laughs> but yeah, uh, it's one of those funny things where like you don't want to lose I guess maybe a better way of putting it is you don't want to lose the the respect from the student so that the student no longer believes that you can teach them what they need to learn. Right. They still have to believe in your your knowledge. They still have to believe in your abilities as a teacher. Yeah. Um, but they also have to see that 
your abilities came from somewhere. So, to get back on track, considering the time, <laughs> you for your debugging steps, are there just two steps, or are there more steps than that? Ah, so, um, so in that loop um, of exploring those different hypotheses, um, mm-hmm. And and trying to localize, you know, was this particular guess that you made um, a good explanation of what happened? You know, mm-hmm. if you find the defect, then inside that loop, it's about trying to um, identify what you can change about the program to prevent that behavior from happening um, while still preserving the behavior of everything else. And that's mm-hmm. a hard task as well, right? That becomes a collaborative thing as well. Can you talk to classmates, to a teacher, but identifying what that patch is? And then we have this really fun thing um, outside that um, hypothesis testing loop at the end, which is what happens if you didn't find it, <laughs> right? What happens if all of your hypotheses were wrong? What do you, what do, you do next? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in some sense, there's a big outer loop, which is we'll go back to the beginning and, and try, try again because mm-hmm. there's probably an explanation out there. And maybe it has to do with you not quite understanding what the, um, what the goal of the program is in the first place. Oh, okay. So... In some ways, yours is not, I I don't know if I'd really call that a three-step process. It's more kind of step one, step two, repeat step two until you run out of ideas. Step three is go back to step one. Yeah, there's absolutely control flow (laughs) in these strategies. There are loops. There are lists of things you need to remember to go through, right? And and this is why they they require in that same way lots of self-regulation. You have to be, Mm -hmm. you know, writing these things down somewhere. We'd actually um, worked on a tool to support that process, right? So Mm -hmm. the strategy's written down. There's a scratch pad to write down all of the data you need to keep track of while you're going through Mm -hmm. your process. and then there's a tracker of where you are in that strategy so you don't lose track of where you are. So as we wrap up, the next thing that we want to talk about is something awesome in computer science. Do you have anything in particular that you're, you'd like to talk about in computer science that you think is not as well known as maybe some people should know about it, but you think is really interesting? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many things to choose from. Um, I, I get really uh, uh, interested in history around different things and how the field has evolved over time, and, and especially since it's such a new field, right? We mm-hmm. can really know the origins of how people think about this in interesting ways. So one particular piece of history that I'm really fascinated by is um, there's a, a computer scientist, um, Donald Knuth, who many people know as... Um, uh, the originator of lots of core algorithms in computer science. He wrote lots mm-hmm. of very large tomes, um, you know, really describing uh, the performance qualities and, and um, of many popular algorithms that, that are sort of ubiquitous today. So hugely impactful researcher. But he wrote this paper um, uh, in the middle of all of that work while he was working on this um, typesetting uh, programming language called LaTeX that a lot of people mm-hmm. still use to write research papers. Yep. Um, both in computer science and mathematics. So for 10 years, he was working on this typesetting um, uh, program while he was doing all of these algorithms things. And he just spent every moment of those 10 years working on that project cataloging every single mistake he made, right? So some people think of him as this sort of god of computer science, amazing algorithms and inventions, uh, Mm -hmm. really shaping the field. And here he is in the background just writing down every single little tiny mistake he made and how it just caused caused all kinds of problems in his programming. So it's just this Uh wonderful example of... um, 
you know, that that really sort of hidden secret thing about computer science culture where, yeah, we're we're signaling all of these really amazing things that we're doing, but we're Mm -hmm. often not talking about the mistakes we make and all of the challenges that we face and trying to um, arrive at some of those amazing things. So what Mm -hmm. Knuth did that was amazing was he did tell people about all of those mistakes. So after Mm -hmm. he'd cataloged them for 10 years, um, he wrote a journal paper um, writing about all of those mistakes that he made, um, classifying them into different categories. We know now that many of them make no sense and like we have better <laughs> science on it now, but he was really one of the first people to say, well, there are these different kinds of errors that people make mm-hmm. and that we should understand those kinds of errors. Mm-hmm. Um, this was also at a time when computer science was really trying to um, formalize what rigorous um, research looked like. Mm-hmm. And it was very much heading in a direction of mathematical formal proofs about program correctness and mm-hmm. at at most maybe some quantitative empirical data to talk about performance and other types of things. But his mm-hmm. journal paper was a purely qualitative effort. He was mm-hmm. describing journal entries that he'd written for a decade, right? He was mm-hmm. analyzing qualitatively what he wrote in those journal entries. He was coming up oh. with categories about his behavior and his thinking, right? <laughs> and, and this is a person who was doing mostly formal stuff, uh, mathematical yeah. proofs of complexity for algorithms. So oh, it, I find awesome. it just to be the most fascinating example of just how nuanced and, and, um, and uh, sort of pluralistic computer science is at its heart. It's really Mm -hmm. both mathematical and social and cognitive. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the founders of the field embodied all of those things in that work. Um, I think we should always remember those those details and go back in that history to remember where we came from. Yeah, I I love the idea of trying really hard not to appear perfect to people. Because I feel like we, we do that a little too much in our society right now, appearing perfect. And that puts pressure on everyone else to also feel per- be perfect. And we've gotten to the point where if you're not perfect, some people think that something's wrong with them. And that, that, is, that is a tragedy that I don't think is, is healthy on any level. And I, I feel like this is, that's one part of our society that I wish would change. Yeah. And in our little corner of the world in computer science, when we're teaching it, we have a huge opportunity to do that, right? I think it's particularly challenging because programs and computers expect us to be perfect. <laughs> They're sort of yeah. relentlessly unforgiving you know, of our mistakes. <laughs> All right. So let's close out with our last segment, TLDL, Too Long Didn't Listen. So given that everyone is busy... What would you say is the most important thing that you want our listeners to get out of our conversation? I think the really central idea is that um, debugging is a really primary skill. It is necessary from the first line of code that somebody writes all the way through them finishing a program that they think is correct. It's just embedded and interleaved in every single thing that we're doing when we when we write programs and we write software. Um, and therefore, we should probably teach it. Um, when we mm-hmm. don't teach it, students really struggle with it. And I think we're starting to discover some ways of, of teaching it more effectively. Um, some of those ways involve having step-by-step strategies that learners mm-hmm. can follow um, and then helping learners um, practice those strategies over time. And I'm hopeful that with um, some further research, we'll get a really strong sense of exactly how to do that, how to support that 
for um, students with uh, diverse prior knowledge, but also students who are neurodiverse in, in lots of ways. Um, mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of interesting challenges that teachers have to face now in classes and that mm-hmm. um, through some research, we'll be able to really support them in the next few years with further discovery. Thank you so much for joining us, Amy. And this was the CSAD podcast hosted by me, Kristen Stevens-Martinez at Duke University, edited by Susanna Robertson and funded by a 60 special project grant. And remember, teaching computer science is more than just knowing computer science. And I hope you found something useful for your teaching today. Mm-hmm.